A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, beginning in verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. For when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. I'll be reading our sermon text tonight from the book of Acts in chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand and as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, and we also ask by the power of your spirit that you in this very moment would do the thing that only you can do. Lord, that is to take these words from your word, Lord, the words that I've prepared, and to illuminate them, to shine light on them, Lord, to shine light on our hearts. And to use them to great effect in our lives and to give us great hope in our Lord Jesus. So in your kindness and your mercy, would you do these things, we pray. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Because at least some of my time each week is spent preparing lunches for young children. And because at least some of those lunches for these young children involve ramen noodles, I bring you a sermon introduction from the world of boiling water. Um, Yesterday, uh, I boiled some water for my children for their ramen, And as I'm boiling the water, I realize, yes, I've got it. See, Luke writes stories kind of like one boils water. And let me explain what I mean. So when you you boil water, just follow me here, Um, you put water in a pot and you set it on the stove. And then you turn on the heat, and over time, the water starts to get warm, and it starts to bubble a little bit. At first, you can see little bitty bubbles on the bottom of the pot. And as the heat continues to be hot, the water begins to get bigger bubbles to the point where it is boiling over, and then at some point, you turn off the heat, and everything just kind of settles down to a new situation with a new temperature, with new possibilities. And that's a good way to think of this story. We've got a setting, we've got a situation, we have something happening and it's on the stove. And as we look at this story, it's going to get a little hotter, a little hotter. It's going to start boiling to a point of sort of explosive tension. And then something will be said... Another thing will happen, and it'll just sort of settle into a new situation for the life of the church. 
So if that works for you, that illustration, here we go. And normally there is a main thing I want you to hear. If you don't hear anything else, I'll say you got to hear this. And I tell you that at the beginning, but tonight I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit. I'm going to lead you there slowly. As we have walked our way through this book of Acts, we've been asking this Acts question is what I call it. And the Acts question goes like this. What means does the Spirit use to the ends that the gospel is proclaimed to all the world? We've seen different means that the Spirit uses so that this gospel gets proclaimed. And tonight, we see that the gospel is proclaimed through the means of the suffering of God's people. So that's at least what Luke is getting us into. So let's follow this story um, in particular. We start with a little bit of a setting and a situation. So look with me at verse 12 of chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." The setting, the situation of this story as it begins, the, the water in the pot on the stove, is that Peter and the apostles are ministering throughout the city of Jerusalem, and they're able to, by the power of God's Spirit, perform signs. Okay, remember, these aren't just miracles, they're signs. Signs intended to be pointing to something of the identity of Jesus. These wonders, these extraordinary things, and a, and a crowd is slowly beginning to build and gather. The church is being added to, the assembly of the believers is growing larger and larger with every passing week. People are beginning to notice the kind of works that are being done through these apostles, and, and people are bringing out sick folks to be healed. The, the idea that we're supposed to have in our minds is, is that of Peter and John and the apostles walking through the streets in Jerusalem and just gathering a bigger and bigger crowd. And this gathering, this worship gathering that would happen would happen in a public place. In this case, it was in Solomon's portico. It's a certain area of the Temple Mount. Now, this is a little hard to explain, but go with me. And I know that all illustrations eventually break down, but just imagine this. If you can imagine where um, City Hall is in Homewood, if you know where Soho Social is, that little, um, that little kind of open courtyard kind of area across from the Jacks. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And imagine every Sunday a group of us were gathered there to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And with each passing Sunday, more and more people are beginning to be crammed into that public place, worshiping Jesus. People are beginning to bring folks who are sick to that public place in this public square to be healed, and it's happening. That's our situation. And we start to notice that the water's getting warm, that there's a point of tension here. Look with me in verse 17. 
But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. If you remember just a few chapters back, this is the group who called in Peter and John to interrogate them publicly about their preaching in the name of Jesus. So it's the same group of people. They've got the same issue with the same apostles, except now things have gotten hotter. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. So verse 18, here's what they do. They arrested the apostles. They put them in the public prison. No, this is hard to imagine, but the Homewood City Jail is like across from Real and Rosemary Urban Cookhouse-ish. So they took them from the place where the preaching's happening to the city jail. And then verse 19 is just thrown in there. But during the night, an angel of the Lord, by the way, opened the prison doors and brought them out. <laughs> And said, go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people, all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. In the middle of the night, they're let out of jail by an angel. And they go right back to that public place to begin preaching and teaching again. Sometimes the Bible just has these, oh, by the way, lines. Oh, by the way, an angel let him out. And they just kept preaching. And it's at this moment in the story that we're thinking to ourselves, Peter, this is your chance. Okay, you're preaching, you're teaching the name of Jesus. They warned you. You kept doing it. They arrested you. Now you've been thrown in prison and now an angel has let you out. This is your chance to just settle down a little bit about this. Like, you know, two, two, two chances. You just go back to Galilee and live a good life. You can be done here. But it says that he entered back into that place and once again began preaching and teaching. Then the second half of verse 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find him in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Later on in verse 25, and someone came and said, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So when you're doing the thing that you were just put in prison for doing, the people who put you in prison don't love that. Look, they're here again preaching. Verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. See, it's, it's more tension now. It's building. It's, it's now even hotter. And the chief priest says, we strictly told you not to teach in this name. If this was a text message or a comment on social media, it would be one of those, we clap hands told you clap hands, not clap hands to teach clap hands in this clap hands name, clap hands. In other words, it's forceful. 
Yet you are here and have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Again, this is Peter's moment. This is his chance. He can say, you know what? You're right. You told us not to do this. I know you threw him in prison. Then I got out, and I shouldn't have come back and do this. And now that I'm here, I can just say, okay, I'll go back to Galilee. But he just keeps on, in this case, proclaiming the truth. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. This is the second time that formula has happened in this book. And the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his right hand as leader word here is strange. It's like prince or governor, ruler, and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of your sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. If you notice Peter's bold proclamation, his bold witness here, I want you to hear me. It's both cutting and challenging, but it's also an invitation at the same time. It was you, and it was under your leadership that you participated in maybe the worst crime of all time, putting to death the author of life himself. But it is not too late for you. He's here to offer forgiveness of sins. You can be alive in his spirit. It's it's here. And the pot of water, which was warm which then became warmer, which then got even hotter, is now boiling over. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This word enraged is somewhat of a strange word. It's something like this. They were rubbed raw. Or they were cut, severed through the nerve. Or they were sawed to the quick. In other words, murderous passion bubbled up in them and boiled over. The powers that be here did not want to hear that a crucified man was the Lord of the universe. That someone who used to be dead is alive forevermore. That the one that was put to death, was raised from the dead, has actually ascended to the right hand of God the Father and actually upholds the universe at this very moment by the word of his power. And the biggest thing, he's leader, he's Lord, and and they don't want to bow to him. It does remind me more of our own hearts than we'd like to admit, right? So the water's boiling. It's boiling. The story's boiling over. It's boiling over at this point. And then Gamaliel says something. It almost just turns the heat off and things begin to settle down. But it's interesting. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. 
He said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. He goes on to say, if they are of God, if the things they've done is from God, then you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing him. Now, this is really interesting, and he cites examples of these would-be Messiah people who kind of flamed out. So what's likely going on here is Luke, our storyteller, is giving us a moment of dramatic irony. This is when a character says more than they realize. Hey, look, if they're kind of just the latest on the block, kind of uh, teachers of a Messiah, don't worry, they're they're, going to go away. They'll flame out, they'll fizzle out. And if they're from God, you won't be able to stop them anyway. And, And this is Luke's way of looking at us as the readers and saying, did you hear? storytelling technique. They're from God. They won't be able to be stopped. And honestly, y'all, this is the point to me when this story gets craziest. I mean, the angel opening up the prison was a lot, but I think this is a little more crazy. Look at verse 40, at the end of verse 39, actually. So they took his advice, verse 40, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Peter, this is really, really, really now your chance. They did not kill you. They got talked out of killing you. Yes, they have beaten you, but they have let you go. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41. See, it's in between verse 40 to verse 41 where so much of the profundity and the depth of following Jesus is housed. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. First thing, what? They walked away rejoicing. They walked away deeply glad. It doesn't mean it was easy, but deeply glad. That's what it means to rejoice in the New Testament, to have a deeper than should be their gladness. And gladness does not look like happy clappy. Remember that. Gladness means a strong trust that the Lord somehow is in this and with us. Deep of kind of gladness like that. That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. He chose us to suffer dishonor for his name. That's what he's saying. And Peter, once again, this is your chance, but in verse 42 it says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They just kept right on. 
so what do we do with this story? Because I've told you the story. I tried to give you a sense of how it builds to this moment. But let's talk just about our own hearts and what it might mean to wrap our lives around the truth of this story. It's not so much we take this story and sort of apply it to us. We apply us to it. A couple things. There's probably 15 things we could say, but I want to just say three things to you in light of this story. First of all, there's a little bit of a tendency we can have as Christ's people of living in a posture of fearfulness and kind of hand-wringing. I'm using hand-wringing as a symbol of like anxiety, like oh. <sighs> about the cause of Christ in our world. And one, one thing I think this story helps us do is take a little bit of a deep breath and say, you know what? The cause of Christ will always do just fine. Gamaliel is right. They won't be able to be thwarted. Now, that will often involve a lot of pain, difficulty, suffering. In a couple chapters, one of them will give their life. But the truth of Christ just keeps marching on. Can't be stopped. Always remember that. By definition, it can't be stopped. It's impossible for it to be stopped. It can't be. Here's the second thing I think this story teaches us. And it has to do with the way Peter takes this. The way Peter and John take this, the way the apostles take this. They're beaten and told not to preach and teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And they walked away rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name. I think this shows us at least something of the idea that there's always joy to be found. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's preferable. It doesn't mean we understand it. But there is a pathway for joy. There's always a pathway for joy. And again, joy is that quiet trust that the Lord is in it and with us. And here's a third thing. And maybe it's the main thing I want you to hear tonight. If you don't hear anything else I say, this is the thing. I think this story teaches us that Jesus must be worth it. Peter thinks he's worth it. In a couple chapters, Stephen will think he's worth it. Later, Paul will think so. And I could literally name off a list of millions of people from every tongue and tribe and nation who you will actually meet one day. 
a long line of people testifying that Christ is See, see why, why is Jesus so worth it to Peter? Let's take Peter as an example. Why? Well, well, first of all, let's just think what Peter has lived through in like the last couple of months. I mean, he has lived with Jesus for the last three or so years. And he's seen Jesus Christ. He's seen Jesus. This is Jesus we're talking about. He has seen Jesus. And Jesus' perfect life of active obedience before God the Father, perfectly fulfilling all righteousness in every situation, always. He's seeing Jesus obey God perfectly in all the ways that he can't quite find the strength to. He's watching Jesus succeed. He watches Jesus go to the cross, and most likely from a distance because he is embarrassed. He has quite loudly cursed any association with him, but he has seen Jesus go to the cross to die for his own sin. He has walked in an empty tomb where Jesus no longer is laying because he's alive. He is on a beach with Jesus eating breakfast where Jesus completely and utterly restores him after all his failures. In other words, he notices how this Lord Jesus does not give up on him at all. See, just like Jesus was raised, Peter was raised. Just like Jesus was dead and buried, Peter was, in all effects, dead and buried, but then he was, raised, he was raised and made alive in Jesus. Peter has been in the room when the Spirit fills him. He's enjoying this sweet communion with Christ. Just the longer you see Jesus, the longer you get to know him, the longer you take hold of his promises, the more you begin to believe he's worth it. And look, the main thing I have to tell you tonight is that this same Jesus who did these things for Peter is absolutely the same Jesus who've done these things for you. All of him for all of you. That's the best way to understand the Christian life. If you need him, you've got him. Now, I cannot possibly know tonight as the preacher exactly the right places where you need to know that Jesus is worth it all. I can't know that. I have no idea. It most likely won't look exactly like this. As an example, this is just me talking, Joel Busby has never been brought and thrown in the homeless city jail. It's not happened to me. It's also not saying it wouldn't happen to me, but it hasn't. But like you, painful and difficult things I've experienced because of the call of God in my life. What Peter, John, these apostles would want you to know he's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. 
worth it.